The Tom Woods Show, episode 2140. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am running into a lot of progressives saying, look, police, fire, schools, these are all great examples of socialism. Well, let's focus on that school example. I've got a free ebook called Education Without the State that makes a pretty darn good case for a stateless approach to education. Pick it up at nostateeducation.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Germinal G. Van is back with us again. We're going to continue our conversation that we had a couple episodes ago on his book, Black Culture and Generational Poverty, A Historical, Economic, and Sociological Analysis. We barely scratched the surface last time, but now we'll dig a little bit deeper. There's a lot of material here. You're covering really, I think, all the major things that need to be hit. And that includes a chapter on the welfare state and the role that the welfare state plays. And this seems, it's hard for some people to accept because it seems as if people who think that the poor should get various payments if they're in particularly dire circumstances, well, that seems like it can only have benign results. And to say that that actually caused negative outcomes seems counterintuitive to people, let's say. So how do you explain that? Well, it's very interesting because to me, if those who enforce welfare state policies truly believe that it will help the poor, they should give them money instead of kinds. But they don't give them money. They give them kinds because they know that if they give them money, they're going to mismanage that money. Right? Because they're treating the poor as a child who, you know, who doesn't know how to to manage whatever toy you give him. Like you give him a toy, he's gonna break it away. He's gonna, he's gonna toss it and it's gonna be broken. And the problem with the welfare state is that the intention was good. Like, okay, we think that we need to have a safety net for people so that they can start off. Because yes, people don't have the same resources in life. This is a fact. It's not easy for everyone to have access to resources. So we need to give them a hand. But the problem with giving them a hand is that when you give them one, they ask for two, and then you give them two, they ask for four, you give them four, they ask for six, eight, nine, ten, etc. So it basically creates a state of dependency. But that, of course, works for one entity only, the government. Because as the government gives you hands out, now you become accustomed to those hands out. And when election cycle comes around, the party that is in power and enforcing those laws on you, giving you those handouts, you tend to vote for them. This is one of the reasons why most of the people who are under the welfare vote Democrats, no matter the race. They always vote Democrat because Democrats are the ones that expand welfare policies. But the welfare policies never leave people out of poverty. Instead, it keeps you in because they say if you make above the threshold, you're no longer eligible to receive those benefits. So you have people who receive benefits without having to produce. So they're like, hey, I'm home. I'm getting my five or 600 paycheck every two weeks from the government. Why should I bother going to work? I'm going to go work. The money I make, the government's going to take it away from me through taxes. And then I have bills to pay. I have the rent. I have the mortgage or whatever. So basically, I have nothing left for me but I'm home, I'm not working, and the government is paying me for that. So why should I go work? That's how they see it. So, you know, you make, basically you're making free money. 
to them, they think it's free, but the money they're receiving is from someone else who is waking up at four or five in the morning, commuting and working until 9 p.m. So as we say, like they're just being free riders. They're being free riders. They're taking advantage of that. And it's basically, and the government is patronizing them. That's a problem. They're being patronized because they're adults who think that without the government, they cannot be on their feet. But the government, through these policies, keep them into poverty because of, as I say, if you make more than the threshold, you're no longer getting those benefits. So people see that and they don't want to do more. They don't want to get back into the workforce. So it becomes a problem. And on top of that, it has affected the Black community in a very disproportionate way because... Those laws basically incentivize Black women to have kids with many different men. And so based on the number of children they have, the checks they collect becomes bigger. But what about those men? Most of them end up rotting in jail, sometimes for crimes they didn't commit. Some of them even have to leave the house. So those women can get married and they have kids and those kids grow up in a household without any male figurehead to give them guidance and authority. And these are the same kids now that grew up with mental illness and they're basically setting their way up for jail because they're in the street. So the welfare state really, really affected the Black community in a really, really bad way. This issue of whether welfare affects marriages, this has been debated quite a bit in the social science literature back and forth. Mm -hmm. Because of course, Charles Murray famously claimed that it did have a big effect in his book, Losing Ground, from, I think, around 1984. Mm. But to me, one of the definitive answers to this came in the 1970s, there were a series, well, late 60s into the 70s, a series of, quote-unquote, income maintenance experiments. So the main one was in Seattle and Denver, the Seattle income maintenance experiment and the Denver income maintenance experiment. But there was also one in Gary, Indiana. And what's interesting is that in Seattle and Denver, they found that that yes, that marriages broke up at a much higher rate when people were getting these payments, but they didn't in Gary, Indiana. And so they were interested in that. Well, why would it be that marriages would break up you know, with the intervention of the welfare state in Seattle and Denver, but not in Gary? And the answer was that in Gary, people mistakenly believed that if they dissolved their marriages, they would lose the payments. So they stayed together. So it actually it actually showed that that was a consideration in people's minds. Right. It, was a, it was it's a very very striking result. The other thing that Charles Murray did that it's very helpful was he said that even if you were trying, in fact, I think he maybe he did this in Losing Ground, but maybe he did it in another book. But he was saying the problem that a policymaker faces in this situation is virtually insuperable because what you're trying to do is discourage people from getting in a situation that's going to wind up with them very likely to be poor. So he gives it as an example. He says, let's suppose we were trying to devise a stop smoking plan. Well, we can't just say, all right, anybody who smokes gets $10,000 if they quit because you would just start right now and then quit five minutes later and ask for your $10,000. So you can't do that. So you have to just, he says, let's just say people who have smoked for five years will be eligible for the program. But the problem is, well, then if I've smoked for four years and 11 months, why wouldn't I smoke for one more month so I could then get the 10,000? Or if I've smoked for four years, maybe I'd smoke one more year to get $10,000. So again, the problem is coming up with an incentive to get people to quit that's strong enough 
that it makes them really want to quit, but not so strong that it makes them want to start smoking in order to be eligible for it. So the, the analogy to welfare is that welfare, like cigarette smoking, is addictive. Yeah. And it's not a good thing in the long run. And that what seems like sufficient enticement to get off it in the long run may not be sufficient once you've been addicted to it for all that time. And so how do you devise a program where the incentive is strong enough to get people to the desired outcome, but not so strong that it actually winds up putting people in the very positions you're trying to wean them off from in the first place. It actually makes it attractive to be in socially undesirable situations. And that is the problem. Exactly. And the end goal of that is to get votes. It's to get votes. Of course. Of course. And not thinking about what's for the long-term good. Exactly. Of these people. But, hey, look, I'm giving you an envelope. You know, there's an envelope that contains a check with your name on it. I must be your friend. And in the immediate short run, maybe you look like my friend. Maybe this is a case where it's cruel to be kind, as they sometimes say. Right. Let's talk about the notorious chapter four of your book. Mm -hmm. Because here, well, actually, is it just entirely chapter four? Hold on a minute. Maybe it's not just chapter four. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's chapter four, all right. So chapter four is called, in fact, I read this out loud when I was sitting in my house. I read out loud to everybody. I said, this chapter is called Black Culture and Counterproductive Habits. Now, you just, sorry, Germinal, you're not allowed to write a chapter like that <laughs> because nobody has counterproductive habits that they need to be told about. But yet, sometimes people do, and it would really do them a disservice not to tell them about it. So what are you talking about? We kind of hinted at this last time, but what exactly do you mean? I mean, let's be specific. What is it that you're seeing in the black community where people have had inculcated in them self-sabotaging ideas? Well, basically in this chapter, I'm talking about a set of counterproductive habits that sabotage them. Those habits are basically lawlessness, violence, a refusal to respect authority, sexual promiscuity, and a glorification for prison. That's why I started with, after talking about Black culture in itself, before and after the Civil Rights Act, I focus now on those specific counterproductive habits in hood culture. And um, Black culture specifically has a glorification for hip-hop. Hip-hop in addition to being an artistic and musical movement, which I strongly respect in terms of musical skills, has, to me, decimated the Black community because what they talk about in the lyrics encourage people to put themselves in trouble. And I explained that in hip-hop music, especially in the lyrics, they talk about like how they shot this, they had sex with that girl, they did this, they went to jail, they survived. Basically, what they're trying to show is toughness. But what they don't tell to their listeners, specifically the ones who are not aware of these things, is that when you go to jail, even if you end up getting out, you're going to be into a social prison. You cannot rent an apartment. You cannot get a job because of background checks. You cannot get a loan. What are you going to do? You're going to try to start a business, sure, but if you start a business, serious customers will actually do a background check on you. They will try to look you up online and see what you're up to. If you're a reliable seller, if they see that you've been to jail, to them, it tells that you're not a serious person, you're not a reliable person. In fact, you're a liability to them. So hip-hop culture is 
promoting this glorification of going to jail as if it was a good thing. I even compare Clarence Thomas to young Blackster. Clarence Thomas, who to me is one of the finest men in America, like he grew up poor. His grandfather said, I, I watched his interview, his grandfather said, boy, go get your education because it's the only thing that no one can take it away from you. His grandfather used to make him go to the library pretty much every day after school. Clarence Thomas excelled. He went to law school and he went to Yale Law School, like arguably the number one law school in the country and one of the greatest law schools in the world. If you go to Yale Law School, you're pretty much set for life. We all know that. So that's why it's a very selective school and he managed to go there. Now, we don't know if he got there because of affirmative action. We don't know that, but he had good grades regardless. He became a federal judge and now he's a Supreme Court justice. This is the dream of any person who wants to succeed in life, especially in a country like the U.S. And yet you see young black boys and girls admiring black youngster, a rapper who is surely successful financially, but is not an example to follow because what he's talking about is not helping the black community at all. Instead, it maintains them in that deprivation state. I talk about sexual promiscuity because... I showed the data that the Black community is the community that has the highest rate of HIV in the country, in pretty much in every city. So that is a problem. And the issue is that, like, for whole people, having multiple sexual partners is a sign of domination, is a sign of attractiveness. But they completely overlook the consequences of having sex with multiple partners, especially when those sexual activities are unprotected, like you are basically getting disease and you're spreading those diseases around. And it creates a lot of death in the community because those people don't have the means to actually receive proper treatment because they don't have health insurance. Talk about lawlessness. In the Black community, there's no law and order. It's basically the law of the jungle. The strongest is the one that dominates. And you see that through gangs. If you ride in the hood, you like... You look at someone the wrong way, the guy can literally take your life just because of a look. So these are stuff that absolutely do not pertain to creating a better lifestyle for people. People are always into excessive gatherings. They do everything that basically does not contribute to improving your material condition. Doing drugs, drinking alcohol excessively, always hanging out. And the little money they have, they're spending on things that they don't need or they're spending on depreciating assets. So these are all habits that low-income Black people do and it maintains them in that poverty and they think that the doom, although they're not, again, it's just a matter of attitude. It's just a matter of behavior. And they really don't grasp that. And that's why they're still poor. So that's why I decided to make this chapter perhaps the longest chapter of the book because it's, and as you said uh, in the previous episode, I was frustrated. I was frustrated, but I tried to maintain my frustration in a polite way. But I was frustrated because I saw the problem. And it's something that can be overcome. But in order to overcome that, people need to be educated. And they see education, again, as a white thing. If you behave, if you're like, if you're a black kid and you get A's, oh, you're being a white boy. You're being a coon. You're being a sellout. As if performing well in school was a bad thing. So basically they're saying that you have to skip class, you have to have bad grades 
so that you are a gangster, you're a real G, as they would put it. And this is nonsense. This is completely counterproductive. I wonder if it's a chicken and egg scenario, though. It seems like we're expecting music, which can, in fact, have tremendously formative effects on people, to bear a very, very heavy explanatory burden for this. Because maybe the music reflects the way people are, rather than people become that way because they listen to music. Why don't they listen to pastors in black churches? Why don't they listen to their elders, who I'm sure would say, hey, get your act together and you know, get a job? Why does hip-hop culture, or whatever you want to call it, have them in some kind of hypnotic trance? Well, simply because it basically reflects what people live in the hood. But it basically tells them that in order for you to, let's say, get out of the hood, this is how you got to behave. But if you look at most of the hip-hop artists who got out of the hood, they never went back. Why they made so much money and they don't live in the hood again, if the hood is such a great place? They don't because they understand that it is a jungle out there. You can get robbed at any minute. You can get shot at any minute. As I said, like for giving the wrong look, for being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you can basically lose your life. And hip-hop culture is trying to describe this in their lyrics without giving positive advice to how to get out of there or how to improve the community. Instead, they're describing something with a taste of glorification as if like, okay, we're proud to do those things. But there's nothing to be proud of if it maintains you in poverty. People should not be proud to be poor. There's nothing good in poverty. When you're poor, you're envious. You're resentful. But if you've bought into a deterministic mentality, you don't sit around thinking, well, gee, the ideas that I've imbibed are not going to get me out of this poverty. Nothing's going to get you out of it because it's just the way the world is. You are just destined to be poor. Yeah, true. But that is... Well, I, I say that to show how intractable the problem is. Yeah, Right, Because people persist in, in attitudes and behaviors that are not going to lift them out of their condition, but they don't stop to think about that because without even examining their assumptions, they've assumed that I'm destined to be in this condition. There's nothing I can do about it. And by the way, we all this is not just a problem that inner-city blacks have. It's a problem that all people have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We all have deep-seated assumptions about who we are and what we can be. Like, for instance, you can find somewhere online where I say something like, yeah, I could never be an entrepreneur. And I just had imbibed that. Yeah, that's impossible. I'm a consumer. Other people produce things for my benefit, and then I go consume them, and then that's it. And I could never crack out of that because I had just built up an image of myself in my mind. And if it's coming out of your own mind, you're sometimes the hardest person to convince is your own self yeah. because you've, you know, you've imbibed all these assumptions. So likewise, in this situation, so you do have a couple of chapters at the end where you try to figure out what, what a solution might be. It's pretty clear, I think, at this point that a political solution is unlikely, with the exception of a political solution that just unleashes the marketplace, basically. You know, just, just slashes every regulation, every tax, make it as easy as possible to start businesses, stuff like that. But in terms of these deep-seated cultural ideas, I mean, if I were a pastor of a black church, I would be going out there and talking and preaching to young black men and saying, you were put on this earth for something better than what you're doing now. That you have a destiny in this world that is better than what you're doing right now. 
It seems to me there have got to be heroic people out there like that, persuasive people who can hold out the prospect of a better life that somebody might be more attracted to than the message they hear in music. Absolutely. And one thing also is that, as you say, we always look up into like heroic person. We have to, however, shift our approach to who we follow as leaders because the Black community believes that we need a leader to guide us to the promised land. Back it was Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. They were the true leader of the Black community, both intellectuals. So the Black community was, at that time at least, they were on the right path at least. But then we start to evolve into believing that charisma suffice for us to follow a leader. As I said in the previous episode, we don't follow producers. And producers are the ones who change society because producers have evidence of what they've created and how what they created changed society. Why in this world we love Elon Musk? We love Steve Jobs, although he was sometimes a pain in the butt. But we still love those people. We still look up to them because those people are producers. They created something that basically changed the lives of billions of people. But in the Black community, we don't. We follow people who are very charismatic, who make us feel good for a very short period of time, but nothing changed in a practical matter. And one way to change things is education. But yet, even there, the civil rights movement prevents the enhancement of the education system in the Black inner cities. So, like, kids who go to public schools in Black inner cities, they're pretty much doomed to fail because they refuse to change the management of teaching there. The teachers don't care. The kids do whatever they want. They curse all the time. They don't respect the teacher's authority. And the teacher even doesn't care about the kids. He's there to make his money and leave. So there is a complete dissociation. Mandela said education is the most powerful weapon on earth to change a society. A society cannot prosper if education is not at the center of things. In the Black community, is entertainment. Although entertainment is important, to me, entertainment is a luxury. You focus on entertainment once you have developed yourself and you've reached a level where you don't have to worry about putting food on the table. But when you're at the stage of putting food on the table, what you need to focus on is education and science. But if you look at the leaders of the Black community today, they're all entertainers. And those people, they're very successful. They're making a lot of money, but they don't redistribute that money in the Black community. They don't invest in Black banks so that Black banks can have enough capital to lend to, to Black entrepreneurs and, and Black entrepreneurs can now transform the small business into corporations. You have, like, in order to develop a community, economically speaking, you have to have corporations. You got to think big. Black people get into entrepreneurship. That's true. But most of them, they're sole proprietor. They're just very small business. And those business, like, you know, they basically help you survive at most. That's it. They don't, like, help you build something strong that will be maintained for generations. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've ever experienced burnout, but I am the poster child for burnout. As I've said over and over again, For those two years that I worked on the Ron Paul curriculum, I was just stretched to the limit. 
It was nonstop work because I was also doing the Tom Woods show and also traveling around the world giving lectures and doing all these sorts of things. And plus, I'm a dad and I have lots of responsibilities, but I'd bought into this crazy modern idea that if I had any free moments, like the 10 minutes I'm waiting for an oil change or the 20 minutes I'm waiting in line at the post office, that all that time has to be filled by work. No time for reflection, relaxation, doing something pleasurable, whatever. But work is not the only cause of burnout. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feel burned out. And you can feel like you have a lack of motivation. You can feel irritable, fatigued. Well, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And by the way, I'm very happy to tell you that I myself have used BetterHelp in the past, and it did wonders for me. I was matched with somebody who understood my situation exactly and helped me get back on track. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com woods. That's betterhelp.com woods. Let me just point out, by the way, you have a section on the minimum wage And I know a lot of people are tired of hearing about the minimum wage, but it's very interesting to note how black unemployment tracks movements in the minimum wage. That's a very interesting thing to note because we often say, yeah, the minimum wage, they trot that out as something that's supposed to help the downtrodden, but it doesn't. But yeah, you're not even really sure. Is that really true though? Maybe it does, whatever. But you look at the the numbers you have and it's quite striking. Yeah, pretty much because the thing is that Again, the minimum wage is like the welfare state. It all starts with good intentions. Oh, you cannot pay this person that low money. You know how that person is going to survive. So we have to force businesses to pay those people, no matter if they are the skills or not. We have to force them paying those people a decent wage so they can make a living. And you have people like Bernie Sanders basically selling this false narrative that increasing the minimum wage will make it a living wage. This is nonsense. Because if you increase the minimum wage, you increase inflation. You increase inflation, the price of property, rent, everything in the market increases. Basically, the market value increases simultaneously. So it's not like you're going to increase the minimum wage and the market value is going to remain static. No, they both increase simultaneously. That's why the minimum wage can never become a living wage. And on top of that, it affected Black people the most because Black kids were the ones that had the lowest skills. So an employer is not going to hire someone who doesn't have any skills at all. The reason why before there was no minimum wage is that if you had no skills, you can still get employed and get experience. Again, it's not because you're flipping burgers in in January that you're going to be flipping burgers in December. In America, like the job market moves very fast. You're not doomed to stay at one place for the rest of your life. You work somewhere, you gain experience, you gain the discipline to go to work every day, to respect your boss, to follow instructions and et cetera. And then you move as you increase, as you gain work experience, your income increases as well. But if you prevent people from entering the labor market, they cannot build experience. And that's what the minimum wage has done. Like, yes, it has good intentions, but it has hurt specifically Black teenagers. Let me finish with this. Everybody knows that what you've said in this episode and the one, two episodes ago is true. 
Everybody knows that. Okay, maybe the minimum wage thing's a little controversial, but otherwise, everybody knows there are certain things you need to do, certain attitudes you need to have if you're going to have any hope or any prospect for success. Everybody knows that what you're saying is what needs to be said. And occasionally, somebody in the, quote, black community will come forward and say something like this. And what will happen is, if he does say it, somebody else in the black community will come forward and say, how dare you air our dirty laundry in front of the the whole world, including the white community. But you know what? The white community already knows about your dirty laundry. Right. Okay? <laughs> this is not some secret. Right. That, you know, that there are some problems in the cities. I think everybody gets that. But it's like as soon as somebody says, hey, look, we really got to get our act together and get these, especially the younger people, they don't know which end is up. By the way, it's true of almost all young people these days. They have no idea, idea which end is up or, or what's going on. But they need some guidance from somebody. So we've got to do something. And you can't even, you can't even say it. And yet, you know that if he's being honest with himself, you know Al Sharpton knows this stuff. Of course you he knows. You know if he's being honest with himself, he knows it. But he'd rather keep his influential friends and keep things the way they are than do something about it. Of course he knows, because as I said in the previous episode, if he tells young black kids these five things to avoid poverty, he loses his grip on power. They won't have to listen to him anymore. They'll be like, okay, we can do this without you. Thank you. And that's the funny thing. It's that simple. Just be patient and behave well. Be patient meaning that don't do anything stupid when you're a teenager. Don't have a kid without being married or, you know, like make sure you don't rob a grocery store and then you have a criminal record or something like that. Go to school, like complete high school. Or you can even go to trade school. You know, like if you want to have kids, make sure that you get married first. Because if you get married and you have kids, you have like, in terms of taxes, you get some benefits that single people don't. Because if you have a kid before you get married, it becomes really tough to build wealth. Like It becomes like everything goes into child support and, and all these other requirements that you have to do. It becomes really hard. Like Because to build wealth, you have to save, as I said. And if you, you cannot build wealth without saving and investing the money you save. But if you have a child out of wedlock, well, it's going to be hard to save because all the expenditures goes on the child. And these are stuff that people can do, but people want their leaders to tell them that. That's the thing. They want the person above to tell them that. But the person above will not tell them that because doing so is jeopardizing his own career too. Because the, the, the politicians, as I say, is a social entrepreneur. He, has, he also has his family to feed. He has some work to do. And telling you the truth about how to avoid poverty is not in his best interest. That's why people like Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Maxine Waters, all these people have a lot of money, but they make sure that Black people don't have a lot of money like them. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shame that there aren't, because there are successful Black businessmen out there that they don't grab the microphone, given that everybody has a microphone in this day and age, and say, these people are feeding you nonsense that has not helped. I mean, just look around. Are things getting better because you've been following these people? You feel like your neighborhoods are better, safer, cleaner, more prosperous? Really? You think? Or maybe you should do something else. Maybe you should listen to me. You haven't listened to me before. And maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe I won't do you any good, but it's no worse than you're doing now. I mean, the speech writes itself, Germinal. You know, the speech writes itself. Right. I'm just waiting for somebody to deliver it. Right. 
Yeah, that's that's maybe that's you someday. <laughs> maybe you got to give that speech. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully, I get invited in like one of those commencement. Uh, that's maybe cool. so. Maybe you are the Black John Galt. But the problem would be, do not give a 40-page speech. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, people people, people would be sleeping after this. No, no, that's right. You can't do that. You can't follow the analogy perfectly. But anyway, well, I'm really glad we had this chance to talk a couple of times. Once again, the book is Black Culture and Generational Poverty, a Historical, Economic, and Sociological Analysis. You can check it out at tomwoods.com slash 2140. And Germal, I guess we'll probably be talking two or three weeks from now when your next book comes out. So (laughs) thanks a lot. (laughs) Definitely, always. (laughs) All right, everybody, that's going to do it. I hope, by the way, that you were able to appreciate my Aristotle episode, the one before this one, because with the school year, well, not exactly on the horizon, but with the previous school year just ended, I know families are thinking about the fall and what their plans are. And so I would like to offer some examples of what it is that I did over at the Ron Paul curriculum with my courses on Western civilization and government. So you may hear a few more of those between now and September. You know, you may hear one this week. Who even knows? You know, Woods is full of surprises. But I hope these are topics that we all agree that as educated people, we would like to have some level of mastery of. If not for show-off purposes, then at least to feel fulfilled intellectually. And that's what I am trying to do with those courses and with these episodes in which I reproduce some of those lectures. Well, that's it for today. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.